we come together on a Mother's Day. And yes, we want to celebrate and say Happy Mother's Day to every mother in the room. When we're singing a song like this, we're, we're testifying that if we are in Christ, we are children of God. And whether it's mothers or fathers, we've all come from areas where we don't know what perfection looks like. You know, as good as our parents can be, they're not perfect. As good as we want to be as parents, we're not perfect. (laughs) But our Father is. And that's what we want to celebrate uh, today. If you would, go ahead and and be seated. I want to wish all the moms in this room today a, a happy Mother's Day. And I hope that you feel loved and appreciated not only today, but every day. (laughs) I hope this isn't like a one-time of occurrence out of the year that that happens. Uh, No, we do hope that you you feel loved and encouraged. At the same time, I do want to remember and be mindful that for some of you today is a difficult day. Even as you're being celebrated, even as you're being loved on by your, your children, you've lost your mom. And you're reflecting upon that and and you miss her. Maybe you've had an estranged uh, relationship with with your mom. and So today is is bittersweet. For some of you, you're you're longing to be a mom. And that that desire that is so deep within you has has still left unfulfilled. And so today, it's hard. But as I look about, uh, about this room and I think about all the families that comprise our congregation, I'm reminded of the greatness and the grace of God. I was sitting at home and I was thinking about this and I was just, I'm just reminded of the greatness and the grace of God when I think about our congregation. As he's brought families together through, so it's just a whole host of means. <laughs> yes, biologically, but also through adoption through foster care, and then just as, as us simply embracing one another as family. That's in the six months, a little over six months that we've been here, that's the thing we love most about HBCC is just the embracing one another as family. We're, we're just a, a woven tapestry of God's mercy and grace. And it's just His sovereign provision is seen in so many different ways. And, So if you are a mom, you want to be a mom, or are a female um, with a mom, I want you to stand right now. It goes for every female in the room, all right? And the reason I just want you to stand right now is we want to pray for you. And I'm not asking for people to come all around and lay hands on you or anything like that. But if your, your spouse is right there next to you, your children are right there next to you, yeah, put your hand upon your spouse and put your, your hand upon your children and, and just pray with one another. Oh Lord, we gather here today and we, we want to thank you for the gift of motherhood. For moms who tirelessly give of themselves to care for their families. Who point us to Jesus and to teach us what unconditional love looks like. At the same time, we recognize and feel the effects of this fallen world. There shouldn't be a need for adoption or foster care, but there is. 
Infertility shouldn't exist, but it does. Death shouldn't separate us from our loved ones, but it has and it will. So Lord, we want to pray for for those here today who desire children, but have yet to have that desire fulfilled. Lord, grant them the desires of their heart, whether it's, it's through biological means or through adoption or foster care. And Use these women, use their stories, use their families for your glory. I also want to pray for the, for the birth moms who have chosen life and in sacrificial love have chosen to give their children up for adoption. Let them be encouraged by your grace today wherever they may be. Lord, for all the future moms in this room who motherhood is not even yet a blip on the radar, help them to grow in godliness, to pursue holiness in preparation for that day. And for all of us here today, help us to see and understand that Christ is enough. No matter what our circumstance No matter our pain, Christ is enough. And as we open your word, we ask that you will open ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Peter's second letter, the second Peter chapter one. And as you do, I want to, here in my introduction, I want to borrow from Kevin DeYoung's book, uh, Taking God at His Word, Why the Bible is Knowable, Necessary, and Enough, and What That Means for You and Me, as he quotes an anonymous article from Christianity Today entitled, My Conversation with God. And, And here's basically how that article begins. Does God still speak? I grew up hearing testimonies about it, but until October 2005, I couldn't say it had ever happened to me. I'm a middle-aged professor of theology at a well-known Christian university. I've written award-winning books. My name is on Christianity Today's masthead. For years, I've taught that God still speaks, but I couldn't testify to it personally. I can only do so now anonymously for reasons I hope will be clear. A year after hearing God's voice, I still can't talk or even think about my conversation with God without being overcome by emotion. And then from there, the anonymous uh, professor went on to talk about uh, his experience where where God supernaturally gave him a a book outline and a a title for his book and how God directed him to... um, to use the money and the proceeds from that book to, to help uh, the young man go to school and to prepare for ministry. And then he finished the article by saying how strengthened his faith has been since having experienced this conversation with God personally. And, and it's a fine story per se, except in one very crucial, crucial way. It gives the impression within this story, within this account, that God doesn't normally speak to us personally. And it leaves us feeling as though God speaking to us through the Scriptures is an inferior, less exciting, less edifying means of communication. Leaving us to conclude that yes, the Bible is important, but man, how exciting would it be if we really were able to hear from God. 
Because it sounds amazing having God speak to us personally, certainly, and authoritatively here. But here's what this professor in all of his studies and all of his experience has failed to understand. That every single one of us can hear from God today. Right now. In this moment. God still speaks. Personally, certainly, and authoritatively. So in the words of the late Francis Schaeffer, God is here and he is not silent. We need nothing more than to do than to open up his authoritative and unerring word, the Bible. So we want to hear from God. We don't have to go out and and try to find some experience or seek something out. If you're a mom here today and you're like struggling and you're you're wondering, like, I just don't know what I'm doing next. You're like, I just need to hear a word from the Lord. If you're a dad in that role, if you're a, a person in this room in that position, I just need to hear from the Lord. Open up your Bibles. That's what we're going to do right now. We need nothing more than to open up the unerring word of God. And what we're going to do now is just open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. And before we dive into the text, we need to understand the context of the text. What's taking place here within the text and surrounding Peter's second letter. A letter that Peter is writing now to an unknown church while while in prison in Rome, somewhere around 64 to 67 A.D., just before his martyrdom, so just before his death, which means this letter contains Peter's final words to the church. Just let that sink in for a moment. This, This is what Peter wants to convey to the church with his final words. He wants to communicate before he dies. And it's a message that's exhorting the church to pursue a life of godliness. His final words are an exhortation to pursue holiness, to pursue godliness, because he fears that the false teachers that are infiltrating the church, that are coming in, who are denying that Christ is going to return and judge the world, are going to lead them astray. Basically thinking that they're going to lead them away from holiness because if if Christ is not coming back literally to to judge the world, then what's the point of pursuing holiness? What's the pursuit of godliness if there is no judgment? So, So what Peter is saying, he's exhorting the believers to ignore the false teachers. Hold fast to the word of God. Pursue holiness because Christ is coming back. He will judge the world. And here's his argument as as to why. Here's his defense as to why. One, he gives an eyewitness testimony. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we'll pause there. We need to ask a question. What was Peter an eyewitness of here? What's he referring to here in verses 16 through 18? And to get our answer, we just need to look at the the, the evidence that is found here in verses 16 through 18. Because we're looking at one of two events here by the language. It's either his baptism or it's what's happening at the transfiguration. And when we see here in verse 18 that they were on the holy mountain, it's pointing us to understanding that this is what's happening at the transfiguration. 
But now the question is, well, what is the transfiguration? Well, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, and we're going to just take a look at what the transfiguration is. We're going to look at this account. So Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they came walking with Jesus, talking, were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So what we have is Jesus taking his inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a a high mountain by themselves. And then we're told Jesus was transfigured before them. And again, the question is, what does this mean? What, is, what does he mean by transfigured? It's, it's Jesus being transformed or changed right before their eyes. It's a, it's a radical transformation that's revealing Jesus' true nature. His, his essence as the Son of God is being visibly manifested, made known right before their eyes. And it, he's even being told it's his outward appearance, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's a moment where Jesus' true identity is allowed to shine forth in all of its glory, in all of its splendor, or at least as much as Peter, James, and John were able to handle. And so what we have here, as they stand, they're witnessing Christ in all of His glory, in all of His majesty, in the same way that they will be able to see Him and experience Him when He returns to establish His forever kingdom. This is what they're they're witnessing here. And if that's not enough, while his glory is being displayed, Elijah and Moses appear and they start talking with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm sitting there thinking, okay, now Jesus is standing there with Elijah and Moses and they're talking. What are they talking about? Well, Luke tells us actually. He tells us that they're talking about Jesus' death. So they're talking right there about Jesus' coming death. And if you remember from from Easter, how Jesus had told the disciples on three different occasions, hey, I'm going to to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to die, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they had no clue what he's talking about. You could almost put this in as number four in in this spot. uh, Because he's like... They're talking about his death, and Peter, James, and John are standing there witnessing what's taking place. But we're not going to get into all the intricacies of what's taking place, and we're going to do that when we get to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be walking through Mark later this year. But look how Peter responds to what he's witnessing. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. (laughs) That's like the understatement of the millennium right there. Rabbi, it's good that we are here. But then what does he do? He offers to make Jesus and Moses and Elijah some tents. This is one of those moments where Peter, really he didn't know what to say because of his fear. 
But in, in Peter fashion, he, he just couldn't think of anything to say. So pre-resurrection Peter fashion, he just opens his mouth and he begins to verbally vomit whatever comes up. He says, hey, I think it would be a good idea for us to make you some tents. He's <laughs> like, that doesn't make sense at all here. And in the exact moment, what happens? A cloud overshadowed them. Like a cloud overshadowing the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And in that moment, and from this cloud of glory comes the words, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then the cloud disappears. And Peter, James, and John are left with eyes affixed, beholding no one but Jesus. God the Father, through this, is emphatically declaring that Jesus is able to provide what neither Moses or Elijah ever could. As great as these men were, Jesus alone is the Son of God. Elijah and Moses are, are, are not anywhere close to being on an equal playing field with Jesus. God is saying, listen to Jesus. Set your eyes only upon Jesus. And then as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus tells them, okay, you're not to tell of this to anybody until after I rise from the dead. Nobody. Don't speak of this. Don't talk about this. Don't tell anybody about this until after I rise from the dead. And if you're like me, again, the, the question is, why would he do that? <laughs> like, this is one of those experiences where you want to go and you want to tell everybody about this experience. But here's why he, doesn't, why he tells them, do not go and tell. Because an experience such as this, coupled with an already misguided understanding of the Messiah. Remember, as we talked about in our past series, that a lot of people understood the Messiah, including the disciples, to be kind of like a Davidic conqueror who was going to come and once again make it God's people and God's place under God's rule, kind of a, a Joshua warrior type authority here. And Jesus said, that, that's not who I am. That's not how it's going to happen in this. And so he doesn't want them to have a misguided understanding of who he is. So he doesn't want them to, to think that the, the crown can come before the cross. He's wanting to make sure they do not have a convoluted understanding of Messiahship. That the kingdom can be restored without a suffering servant. So Jesus wants them to first, he wants them to see, he wants them to understand, he wants them to experience that he is actually literally going to die, he is going to suffer, and then he, once he is buried, three days later, he is going to rise from the dead. He wants them to see the quintessential proof that he is who he claims to be. See, if we fail to understand the cross, if we fail to understand the resurrection, we fail to understand the biblical Jesus. Plain and simple. Leave this out and there is no victory over sin. Leave out the death and the resurrection and there is no restoring of the kingdom. If there is no cross of suffering, there is no crown of glory. Plain and and simple. And Jesus wants to make sure that they understand this. And this is why he tells them, tell no one of what you witnessed until after I have risen from the dead. Now we return to Second Peter chapter 1. And some 30 years after Jesus has risen from the dead. And Peter is now speaking of the transfiguration as he's giving it as evidence of Christ's eventual return. He's saying, I know Christ is coming back. I know he's coming back because I have eyewitness testimony of him being transfigured, being manifested, of his glory being seen there. And he goes, you need to pursue holiness. You don't need to buy into the false teaching. Don't do it. 
He is coming back. His judgment is real. Pursue godliness. Pursue holiness. Do not be deceived by false teaching. So he's pressuring, he's pressing them to pursue this. But his exhortation is not based solely around experience. He's not just saying, hey, I saw this, now you need to believe me. No, he comes to something even more sure. The word of God. Turn with me to verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We just continue. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you catch what Peter's saying here? Having just referenced one of the most spectacular experiences anyone could ever possibly experience... He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So as real as this experience was, as life-changing as this experience was, Peter says the word of God is more trustworthy and more sure than any experience that we can ever possibly have. And he says, we have it. We have it. Have what? We have the prophetic word. We have it. And who's the we he's referring to here? The we isn't just the apostles, but the church, all believers. We have the word. We have the Bible. Something more trustworthy and more certain than any experience. We all know this. Our experiences cannot be counted as trustworthy. You, you, right now, all of us are experiencing this room, right now, at this service. But we're all going to leave here and be able to tell various accounts and understandings of our experience. Somebody walk in and say, I experienced it this way. And somebody experienced it this way. You come back and say, well, our emotions, our emotions will always lead us astray. But the word of God will not. So Peter, speaking of, to, to the church in verse 19, says, You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He's using a metaphor that recalls the psalmist's familiar words, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What Peter is doing here is Peter is describing a scripture as a bright light light shining in a dark and sinful world. And he says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, until Jesus returns in all his blazing splendor, in all of his glory, to transform believers into the image of his glory, until the day when Christ replaces his temporal revelation of Scripture with his eternal revelation of his person, we must pay attention to the prophetic word. He said, Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. Has given us the Word, the Bible, to be the light in the darkness until He returns and the darkness is no more. And that's going to be a great and glorious day. The darkness will be no more. Jesus will be the light of the world. But until He returns, He said, I'm giving you the Word. I'm giving you the Scriptures to be a light in the darkness. And what we're going to do now is we're going to quickly look at three reasons why we must pay attention, as he says in this text, to the Word of God. 
So number one reason why we must pay attention to the Word of God is because the Bible is the Word of God. As Peter writes in verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is describing here is the inspiration of the Scripture by the Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Paul writes, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God. No, no part of Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, comes from someone's own interpretation. And the word interpretation here in this context, right here, shouldn't be understood as one's understanding of Scripture. That's important. We need to understand Scripture in its proper context. But when he's using the word interpretation here in this text, he's referring to the, the source of Scripture. The source does not come from man. The source is from God. The origin of Scripture is from God. As verse 21 testifies, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now Peter clearly has great confidence in the Word of God, does he not? We can never in ourselves have as much or equal confidence in the, we can never have as more confidence, let me say, than, than Peter does. We should have equal confidence as Peter we've never been to the Mount of Transfiguration. We've never experienced such things. But we can and should have equal confidence in the Word of God as Peter has. Even in the day and age where, where people want to cast doubt on the authority and the validity of God's Word. There is ample reason to be confident that the Bible is the Word of God. And there's two subpoints that I want to look at. As to why, we could talk about a lot of subpoints. We're going to look at two subpoints as to why we can see the Bible is the Word of God. One, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. We should believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible claims to be the Word of God. And I'm, I already hear the argument. I've heard it a thousand times over. Does that mean that I believe the Bible to be true because the Bible itself claims to be true? Yes. Yes, I, I, I do. And, but then somebody comes back and says, that, that's just circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to defend the Bible. And that, 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 that's just wrong. You can't do that. I'm like, I, have, I, I used to get to the point where I would be like unnerved by that. I'd be like, oh, I've got to have a better reason. And we, and we can. We can get that better reason. We can get into um, apologetic conversations, defense of why the Scriptures are clear. We can get into canonization and, and talk why we should believe in the authority of Scripture and why uh, it's all true. We can do that. I'm happy to have those com conversations. But, but what we need to think about here, think about this. You can't establish a supreme authority of your supreme authority by going to a lesser authority. Right? You cannot establish the, 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 your supreme authority of your supreme authority by going to a lesser authority. Meaning if the Bible is the supreme authority, what's going to be more supreme than the Bible? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing is going to be able to definitively prove the Bible is true other than the Bible. Because to judge the Bible by any other standard, scholastic, scientific, experiential, or otherwise, will be to make the Bible less than it claims to be. The Word of God. The infallible, the inerrant Word of God. I love what J.I. Packer 
says. He says, Scripture itself alone is competent to judge our doctrine of Scripture. You want to know if our doctrine is right? Let's let Scripture judge our doctrine. You want to know if what we're doing is right? Let's let Scripture be our definition and let it be our guide. The second reason we can be confident the Bible is the Word of God is because Jesus believed the Bible to be the Word of God. Jesus held a very high view of Scripture. If Peter's view was high, uh, Jesus' view was even higher. As it was Jesus who said in John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. And in Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Just listen to this. This is how Kevin DeYoung masterfully summarizes Jesus' doctrine of Scripture, Jesus' own understanding of Scripture. You'll be able to follow along on the screen as as I walk through this quote. Jesus held Scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with language of Scripture. He easily alluded to Scripture. And in, the, in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on a cross, he quoted Scripture. His mission was to fulfill Scripture, and his teaching always upheld Scripture. He never disrespected, never dis, disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of Scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He shuddered to think of anyone anywhere violating, ignoring, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, down to the sentences, to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest mark. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, and the authorial descriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time being witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict Scripture or stand above Scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What Scripture says, God says. And what God said was recorded infallibly in Scripture. Jesus submitted his will to the Scriptures, committed his brain to study the Scriptures, and humbled his heart to obey the Scriptures. In summary, it is impossible to revere the Scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. The Lord Jesus, God's Son, and our Savior believed His Bible was the Word of God down to the tiniest speck. And nothing in all those specks and all those books in His Bible could ever be broken. And to that I say yes and amen. Which brings us to the second reason we must pay attention to God's Word. So that we are not deceived. This is the context behind Peter's letter here, that we will not succumb to false teaching, that we will not be deceived. And let's just be honest. No one ever thinks that they're vulnerable to being deceived, that they're vulnerable to deception. But we are all vulnerable to deception. And some are more vulnerable than others. The less familiar we are with truth, the more vulnerable we are to being deceived. And that goes for absolutely anything. 
Just the other day, I was having problems with my, my air conditioning unit. Vance Payne is gracious enough in all his talents to come over and, and to help me. He learned very quickly, I know absolutely nothing about HVAC units. Like, I basically learned how to say HVAC when he was there. And, like, he's talking, he's going through and explaining all these things. And, like, he's, like, you can tell, like, this guy is authoritative. He knows what he's doing here. He, he's good at this. I'm like, sure, yes, yes, uh-huh, uh-huh, I believe you, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to cut here, tear, whatever you need, I'm doing it. And I had every reason to trust him for multiple reasons. But how did I know that he wasn't deceiving me ultimately? It works. <laughs> and like, it works. We turned it on and it works. It works better now than it ever has. <laughs> and it's like, yes, but I knew nothing <laughs> about it. I still don't know anything about HVAC units. Like, I was a car salesman at one point, yeah, right? And I knew nothing about cars. I just, like, pretended I did, you know? And that's a whole other way. No one's walking in a room with a giant flashing light over their head that says, hey, deceiver right here. Uh, like, That's the deceiver. Make it, make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? Like God with false doctrine walks in with a sign on his head and says, hey, false doctrine right here. <laughs> it would make a lot, a lot easier. Hey, crooked car salesman right over here. Hey, it would just make it so, but that's not what we see. In fact, what does Jesus call a lot of these false teachers? He describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, here's the thing. A lot of them, the wolves, they don't even know they're wolves. They don't. And what we find ourselves doing is we find ourselves looking for the, the, the guy in the corner with the slick back hair and the glasses and the trench coat with the daunting music, music playing, kind of like da-da-da-da, false teacher guy coming into the room. Like, no, like deceptive car salesman walking into the room. No, that, that, we're not looking for grandma or grandpa. We're not looking for mom or dad. We're not looking for friends and neighbors who are as genuine and loving as they could possibly be. They don't want to lead us astray. They're just, they genuinely love us. They genuinely want to communicate what they believe, but what they believe is genuinely wrong. What do we do in those situations? What do we do when, when what they're genuinely communicating is, is wrong when it comes to the essentials of the gospel? What do you do? How do you stand against such errors and not fall victim? How do you discern if grandma is telling the truth or if she's the big bad wolf dressed up in sheep's clothing? How? How do you know these things? We follow what the scripture tells us, to pay attention to the word of God as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And we don't do that in just a passive listening sense, but in the manner that we're, where we're striving to know, that we want to know, accept, and truly obey all of God's Word. As it's God's Word that convicts us of our sin, shows us how we are to live, and leads us from the darkness into the light. It's why we're to immerse ourselves in the Scripture. And yes, it's hard. It's difficult. It takes time. It's like building a, a foundation one little bit after another. This past Christmas, we, we, or not Christmas, but winter, when we finally got that snow, I guess in March, the hard, like, yeah, right? Like, we were out building a snowman, and, and the hardest part was getting that first 
packing in. And then after that, we started rolling, and the thing got bigger and bigger and bigger as it went. The same thing is true as we immerse ourselves in the text. It's going to be hard. There's always going to be moments of difficulty. Even when the snowball's big, it's harder to push. But you're constantly being able to pack and learn as you go in and immerse ourselves in the Scripture so that the morning star, Christ himself, will rise up in our hearts. Not just with puffed up knowledge, but so that our affections will be for God. And they will be for God biblically. So we'll be worshiping him biblically. Affections that lead us to worship God and to pursue a life of godliness. Like our affections are being stirred and our knowledge is being stirred. It's like, now I just want to, I want to obey him. I want to do these things because we're, we're learning right truth and our affections are being stirred rightly and it's leading to a life of obedience. See, we can have all the emotional experiences in the world. All of them. But if they are not grounded in biblical truth, if our worship, if, if our affections are not submitted firmly and stirred by biblical truth, then who are we worshiping? Who are we believing in? Because our version of God, our understanding of God does not cut it. We want to know Him in truth. We want to communicate the gospel in truth. So what we, we see here is Peter using the phrase dark place to describe the darkness of this fallen world. It's a darkness that prevents people from seeing the truth and even lulls them into believing that the darkness is normal. Like the darkness is just, that's the way it is. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's lulling them in to deception. But the Bible, the, the lamp, Shines in the darkness, exposing and showing us how God would have us to live. The Bible shows us what holiness looks like. God doesn't call us to be holy and then say, hey, good luck. He's given us the Bible to show exactly what it looks like, how we are to live, and then he's empowered us as believers with the Holy Spirit to actually accomplish it. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. Now picture it this way. Imagine the layout of your house when it's clean. And you're like, hey, that's the imagination part right there. I am just discouraged like every parent in the room. But imagine your house that moment when it was clean, all right? And now, how many of you, if we just turn out the lights completely, you can maneuver through your house relatively unscathed? Say, from your bedroom in the middle of the night down to the kitchen and to the refrigerator. How many? How many of you can do that? All right? Most of us can. Now, we, if we're kind of groggy and kind of walking through the house, you may bump into something here or there, but like your, your mental facets aren't working fully. Uh, but if you're working properly, you're able to do that pretty well. Now, imagine with me if someone comes in and completely rearranges your house. <laughs> you got toys strewn everywhere and furniture's flipped upside down. And now you're like, that's normal. <laughs> that, that, that's the normal part of my house. But now I ask you to turn off the lights and you're going to walk through this Lego landmine in complete darkness, right? Yeah. How many of us are going to walk out of that unscathed? <laughs> yeah, not happening. We're going to be like doing like this number and bumping into stuff and tripping over things. It's going to be all over the place. It's not going to happen. See, when we turn on the light, though, what happens? You see the disaster that's before you. you. You see what needs to be cleaned up. You see what needs to be corrected. And you make the adjustments because the light 
is making the darkness visible. It's making all the obstacles inside of the darkness clearly seen. This is what Scripture serves to do for us in this fallen world. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. It's, it's showing us very clearly what we're walking into and how we are to get where we're going. The Scripture is showing us what needs to be avoided, what needs to be cleaned up, and how it needs to be corrected. But you know what, what Scripture is also doing? It's also in that light focus. It's also serving as a mirror. And I picture that in my illustration mind as one of those vanity mirrors that has the light around it and it magnifies everything like a thousand times bigger. You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I did the mistake about looking into one of those the other day. <laughs> like Leslie has one that re- like reveals like the blemish. I mean, like she doesn't have blemishes, uh, but it, it reveals the blemishes that, that are there. And like, sorry, babe. Um, but... <laughs> Mother's Day gift right there. Anyway, but you know what I'm talking about. It reveals the the blemishes that other people have other than my wife. And with that, other people go through and they put makeup on to cover the blemishes, right? Yes. Like, I need to do that. When I looked into the mirror, I'm like, I thought I shaved. (laughs) I thought, I, it's just, it's, it's horrifying. Like, I don't want that level of truth uh, when, it, when it comes to my physical appearance. But we should want that level of truth when it comes to our spiritual health. And the scripture serves to magnify the truth. And quite frankly, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes we've been thinking, mama told me so, grandma told me so. And they did so with the with the most grace and the genuine love, but they were genuinely wrong. They didn't mean to. But we have to come along and say, okay, now this is what it's saying about me. This is saying about what I believe. This is how we do things in practice. We need to make sure that it's adjusted and corrected and cleaned up by, based upon the Scripture. So again, what do we do? How, how do we stand against not falling victim to false teaching and leading us astray from the pursuit of holiness? How do we do this? We must pay attention as to a lamp in a dark place. Pay attention to the word of God as to a lamp in a dark place. We must be disciplined in knowing, accepting, and obeying the word of God. We must be hungry for the truth. So church, I'm asking today, are we hungry for the truth? So to the point we're hungry for truth, we say, you know what? Tradition doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. All that doesn't matter. We want to know the truth so much. We want everything to be shaped and identified by the truth. We need to ask ourselves, is that where we want to be? Do we want to lead our families, not to just to be good people, but to be godly, holy people, to, to raise our children in the pursuit of godliness, in the pursuit of holiness, not to give them a placebo pill that makes them think that they're having their best life now, but able to walk and pursue holiness, knowing with certainty that when, this, when Christ returns, and he will return, that they will be able to stand before him and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Number three, why are we to pay attention to God's word? Quickly, the last one. It's the only way we can know the gospel. See, we know who God is only through the scriptures. Not through experience, nor tradition, nor personal beliefs, but through the Word of God. And we know who we are in Christ 
only through the Scriptures. We can know nothing true about God, the Gospel, Jesus, salvation, or Christian living apart from the Scriptures. Think about that for a moment. We can know nothing true about God, the Gospel, Jesus, salvation, or Christian living apart from the Scriptures. We do not know what holiness or godliness look like apart from the Scriptures. Yet we live in a culture where truth is now being defined as relative and being basically tossed out the window. People are saying, well, who are you to tell me what to believe? How are you, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? Who are you to tell me, well, how, what, how am I supposed to live? Well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. This is the world we live in. This is what we're dealing with on a day-in and day-out basis. This is the challenge that's before us. Because our mission is not to preach and to believe one truth among many truths. We're not to preach or believe one, one God among many gods or one Jesus among many understandings of Jesus or one means of salvation among many means of salvation. No, we are to preach teach and believe the gospel, the exclusive gospel, the one and only gospel that is objectively, universally, and historically true. Not just true for us, but for all people in every culture throughout all of history. Our claim is that the Bible is the Word of God for all people, apart from which there is no salvation. None. And until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, until Christ returns in all His blaze and glory to be our lamp, to be our light forever, He has given us the Scriptures as our lamp, as our guide. And they have absolute and final authority in everything. Nothing supersedes Scripture. So what we're going to continue to do as a church is let the Bible be our lamp. To let the Bible be our guide. As we preach through books of the Bible, one year after year, we're going to start just next week, we're going to start walking through for the next several weeks the book of Titus. And when we get done with Titus, we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark until we're done with the Gospel of Mark. And we're just going to let the Word of God speak to us as we work through it. And as we do, I ask that we will pray that our desire will be to know the Word of God and the one revealed by the Word of God. That our desire will be to know truth, to accept the Word, and to obey the Word. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit, through, through the Word of God, will convict us, show us how we are to live, and lead us from the darkness into the light. And if we come across something that makes us feel uncomfortable, that's different maybe from, from our statement of faith or our beliefs or our document or our traditions or the way we've always done things, I pray that we will be humble to allow the authority of Scripture to lead us and correct us. Remember, we can be wrong. We are a fallible people. The things that we create and the things that we do, they, they can have their errors. But the Word of God is never wrong. The Word of God is true. The Word of God is altogether true, firmly fixed in the heavens, and it does not change. There is no limit to its perfection. Its content will never get old, and it will never wear out. 
God's commandments are sure. They can be trusted and they will endure forever. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, you want to hear from God? You're at that point in your life and you're just like, I'm desperate to hear from God? Then open up your Bible and let Him speak. He's speaking personally, certainly, and authoritatively through His Word. And let His Word be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You for Your Word. Your inerrant and Your infallible Word from which You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us. Help us to be students of Your Word, but not merely for the pursuit of knowledge, but for the pursuit of holiness. Lord, may we do so for you to stir our hearts with affection for you. Oh Lord, may we be a people who worship you in both spirit and in truth. May we be a people who boldly speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the scriptures are silent. Thank you, Lord, that you are here and that you are not silent. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.